0: It's wonderful to see so many people here tonight and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the eighth in the college's series of Haldane lectures, a distinguished series established in memory of two remarkable scientists, the Scottish physiologist and inventor John Scott Haldane and his son, the geneticist JBS Haldane, whose house once stood on the site of this college and whose memory is enshrined in the Haldane room next door. Since I became president of Wolfson, the Haldane Lecture has been given by the neuroscientist V.S. Ramachandran, the Nobel Prize winning developmental biologist Sir Martin Evans, the computer scientist Sir Tony Hoare, and the public health policy expert Sir Ian Chalmers. Paul Nurse makes a powerful and welcome addition to that roll call of names. Paul Nurse is a geneticist and cell biologist and one of the most effective, influential, and well-known scientific communicators of our day. He was Professor of Microbiology here at Oxford from 1988 to 1993, then Director General of the Imperial Cancer Research Fund, now Cancer Research UK, then in 2003, President of Rockefeller University in New York. In 2010, he was elected president of the Royal Society, the body which shapes the future of science in the UK and beyond. And he is also chief executive and director of the Francis Crick Institute. He has been showered with honors, including the Royal Society Copley Medal, the Légion d'Honneur, a knighthood, and the Nobel Prize, shared with Leland Hartwell and Timothy Hunt for their discovery of protein molecules that control the division of cells in the cell cycle but he is entirely without grandiosity or stuffiness and prefers to be known for his work rather than his accolades. He is committed to the public understanding of science. He is outspoken and determined in the face of political opposition to science such as stem cell research or evolution or climate change. He believes firmly in keeping science and ideology separate and scientific education from school age all through our lives is of the utmost importance to him. He is also a distinguished and high-achieving scientist who creates links with many other intellectual fields. At a college as committed to interdisciplinarity as Wolfson is, it is a great pleasure to welcome to our named Lecture in Science a writer who has said in his 2012 Richard Dimbleby Lecture on the New Enlightenment that scientists need... The historian's eye for detail, the mathematician's feel for logic, and the philosopher's desire to keep asking questions. Tonight, he will talk to us on the theme of making science work. Please make him very welcome.
1: Well, thank you very much for those kind words. It's a great pleasure um, to be at Wolfson. I actually live in Oxford on the Woodstock Road, so it's not so far um, for me to come. And it's a very particular pleasure to give the Haldane Lecture. And I was pleased to hear that it recognises both J.S. Holdane and J.B.S. Holdane, two of my heroes, J.S. Holdane as a wonderful experimentalist and physiologist, J.B.S. Haldane, as a wonderful geneticist and um, polemicist, really, and a great writer of popular science, which I read when I was um, um, at school. And to give the Haldane lecture is, is a great privilege. And it's a particular, I suppose, poignancy for me because of the connection of the Haldane family with the Mitchison family, um, who... Um, Uh, 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 one of these other great scientific dynasties that we have in this country, because um, uh, Murdoch Mitchison um, was um, my uh, supervisor for uh, seven years in Edinburgh, was a great boss. Um, I published, I think, 15 or 16 papers when I was working for Murdoch, and he decided not to put his name on any of those papers, I think it wasn't because he didn't think they were any good. I hope that wasn't the case. But because he did not feel he had made sufficient contribution with his own hands to actually justify a contribution. And I think that indicates a great generosity of Murdoch and um, this sort of connection with that um, particular way of working. I'm going to give a talk on making science work. Um, I'm going to... Cover two sort of areas, some a bit of it is a bit technical, not scientific, but um, you know a bit nerdy. Um, if it gets a bit nerdy, you can switch off for a bit and um, i 'll sort of wake you up when it gets less nerdy and i 'm going to cover two issues: one is how good scientific advice can be given to society um, that is um, how when science is relevant for policy development, and how the second topic, how good decisions can be made about what scientific research should be supported, in particular for the public good. So they, this is a sort of science policy type of, um, of, 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 of talk. Now, I'm going to deal with the second topic first. What, how can we make good decisions? And I think this is crucial, um, in, um, of course, throughout the world. Um, how can we make good decisions about what scientific research should be supported, in particular for the public good? And I'm using the term public good in the widest possible sense, covering the contributions that science makes to our culture and also the applications of science that can benefit society, such as improving our health and quality of life, securing sustainability, protecting the environment and driving innovation to support our economy, all aspects of the public good. I'm going to begin with that topic, and my main focus actually will be more on research leading to applications of science, because I think there's more complicated issues around that. But it's always important to remember that scientific knowledge leads to better understanding of ourselves and of the natural world, And that is an essential part of our civilization. And in this respect, it is like the humanities. Science, in other words, should not be judged solely in a utilitarian manner. This was emphasized quite nicely by the American high-energy physicist Robert Wilson, who, when questioned by Congress in the early 1960s as to how the Fermilab particle accelerator that was the uh, uh, accelerator before uh, the Hadron Collider in Geneva, when he was questioned by Congress about how the accelerator would help national security, he answered, it has nothing to do directly with defending our country except to make it worth defending. And I think that's something we should always remember about science. It's part of culture and it makes an important part of our civilization. Now, the discovery of new scientific knowledge and the application of scientific knowledge are sometimes presented as being rather different, one from the other. The fact is, however, that scientific inquiry has always been concerned with acquiring knowledge of the natural world and of ourselves and also with using that knowledge for the public good. Francis Bacon... In, uh, essentially the, the first philosopher of science in the early 17th century, argued, in, in what he, he was thinking of at the time, science improves learning and knowledge and leads to the relief of man's estate. It helped relief the position of, of, of humankind. This argument was reinforced by Robert Hooke at the birth of the Royal Society. Robert Hooke was the experimentalist, in a sense, for the society, when the society was made up of gentlemen who, of course, wouldn't actually do very much experimenting themselves, and so they had an experimentalist, Robert Hooke, to do their experiments for them to demonstrate um, the latest scientific equipment and knowledge. Robert Hooke... Emphasized again using the language and the things that he was interested in in the mid 17th century, scientific discoveries concerning motion, light, gravity, magnetism, and the heavens all concerns of 17th century science helped to improve shipping, watches, optics, and I like this engines for trade and carriage. Now, there's a continuum, a continuum from what i call discovery science i don't like the term basic science very much discovery science which is acquiring new knowledge through research which is aimed at translating scientific knowledge for application and on to subsequent innovation and this spectrum i suggest should be considered as an interactive ecosystem with knowledge generated at different places within that continuum influencing both upstream in the creation of new discoveries and downstream in the production of new applications. An historic example of how investigations downstream, that is, near to application, can influence research upstream, that is, uh, purely discovery or basic research, was work on improving the steam engine in the 19th century, which greatly informed the subsequent formulation of thermodynamics, which is, of course, very abstract. Now, it's important to emphasise this continuum because investing too heavily in a particular part of this spectrum or placing artificial barriers in that continuum or arguing that different parts of that ecosystem are superior to other parts, and I've heard all of those uh, positions argued for, in my view, should all be rejected. Science throughout that continuum shares the same values, The same skill sets, the same methodologies. Although, as I shall cover, there can be differences in emphasis in different parts of that ecosystem. Now, what factors should we think about when deciding um, what scientific research should be supported? What should be funded? Now, several are important, and I shall um, consider them. But the one that is absolutely crucial, in my opinion, is the scientist carrying out that research. Major discoveries in science are usually associated with highly talented individuals. Talented individuals who combine a number of qualities. They should have in-depth knowledge, of course. They need to be creative. They need to understand the values of science and how research is done. They need to be well motivated. They need to be effective in achieving what they do. And I'm going to talk about a a number of these characteristics. In-depth knowledge. It's obvious you need in-depth knowledge of the area of science that you're working on. But this needs to be combined with what some have called peripheral vision. That is an understanding and an openness to what other sciences can contribute beyond the immediate focus of your own research, your own activities. This is especially required... Obviously so, when a solution of a research problem requires a multidisciplinary or an interdisciplinary approach. Carrying out good scientific research is a creative activity. I want to emphasise that. And scientists have more similarities than might be imagined with those other individuals who are pursuing creative activities, such as the arts, writing, and the media. And like other creative workers, Scientists thrive on freedom. I know this to my cost because organising them is simply like herding cats. In short, you cannot do it. But that freedom is critical. Freedom of thought. Freedom to pursue a line of investigation wherever it may lead. To uncover uncomfortable truths. They are all crucial to an effective scientific endeavour. A scientist whose thoughts are restrained, who is too strongly directed top-down, or who is unable to freely exchange ideas will not be an effective scientist. And this, perhaps, is more controversial. Similarly, in my opinion at least, societies that are not free, societies that do not encourage the free exchange of ideas or respect the values of science, cannot be leading scientific powers because that freedom is closely connected with the creativity required for good science. And I think this is, in fact, a major driving force for democracy and establishing democracy throughout the world. Scientists need to embrace the values of science, to have respect for reliable and reproducible data. They need a sceptical approach, which challenges orthodoxy, and challenges particularly the scientists' own ideas. I always try and argue to my students, you have to be the greatest enemy of your own ideas. A scientist abhors falsification of data or the cherry-picking of data, simply uh, choosing data that supports your argument and ignoring that data which does not. They need a commitment to the pursuit of truth. Scientific research It's, in fact, very hard. I've been doing it for 40 years and it's tough, it's very tough. And to be effective, research scientists need to be highly motivated. Now, this motivation can be provided by a a, a number of things. Often it's provided by a passionate curiosity about the natural world, a desire to know how things work or how they can be directed to achieve particular outcomes. But other motivations are also important. A desire to undertake public good, for example, through the eradication of disease, um, to make something useful, to create economic wealth, or simply to become rich and famous. Frankly, I don't care about the motivation very much, but it has to be a strong motivation because the pursuit of research is long and it is difficult. So in deciding what research should be supported, much attention needs to be paid to scientists carrying out the work, the scientists who are doing the work. And as far as possible, therefore, decisions about research projects, what research should be done, um, should be closely associated with assessments of the individuals proposing those projects. And that is really a major conclusion I want to argue. Now, given this emphasis on the primacy of the individuals carrying out research, decisions should be judged by the effectiveness of the researchers making the research proposal. And frankly, the most useful criterion for effectiveness is immediate past progress. Those that have recently carried out high-quality research are, at least in the short to medium term, most likely to continue to do so. So in coming to research funding decisions, the objective is not to support those who write good quality grant proposals, but to support those that will carry out good quality research. This may seem obvious, but it isn't always obvious to our research funding bodies. So I'm going to repeat it. The objective is not to support those that simply write good quality grant proposals, but to support those who will carry out good quality research. This is not an undergraduate essay, in other words. So more attention should be given to actual performance rather than planned activity. Now, obviously, such an emphasis needs to be tempered, particularly for those who only have a limited past record, such as early career researchers, or for those who have had breaks in their careers. In my view, in these cases, there are other things you can do to help. One is to have ring-fenced... Competitions where um, early career researchers, for example, are all grouped together, so they're not competing with uh, others who, who are more mature. A second um, point which I think is really, really useful is um, to make extensive use of face-to-face interviews, which can be very helpful in determining the quality of the researcher making the application. What I think this allows you to do is to deal with what I call the bullshit factor, because um, uh, individuals can write stuff that sounds good, but when you have them, uh, you know, their eyes in front of you, I tell you, it vaporizes very quickly. The greater costs involved in direct interviews um, will be more, because it is more costly, of course, will be more than compensated by the greater quality of the decisions that will be made. But the problem is, when research councils are under constant pressure to reduce their overhead, that's exactly the sort of activity that goes. And they think that, um, that by reducing overhead, you get more money into the front line. But of course you do, but you are more likely to make a mistake about where that money should go. And I think you have to think very, very carefully about that. So making good decisions about research funding requires a focus on the quality, passion, and past performance of the scientists proposing the research. Now, a perennially vexing question is how prescriptive research funding agencies should be in determining what research areas should be supported. Now, this is a recurring issue, and it arises because of tensions between scientists wanting the freedom to decide what projects they should pursue and society which supports science not simply as a cultural activity, um, increasing knowledge, but as an activity aimed at improving the lot of humankind through achieving Um, specific useful objectives. And this is a critical and difficult problem. And I do not um, want to persuade you I have answers for that, but I want to uh, discuss the issue, because I think it's very complicated. Because sometimes the simple responses to that problem are not, in my view, the best ones. The most frequent response of a funding agency faced with wanting to achieve um, uh, particular objectives is the following. What they will do is carry out a strategic review to decide priorities, research priorities, and identify research areas judged either as being especially timely for future scientific advances or as reflecting particular needs for society. This um, can lead to initiatives that shape or sponsor research. I'm using terms that will be familiar to some in the audience sometimes with ring-fenced allocations of research funding. Now, these approaches are often well-intentioned, and frankly, they are attempting to address an important and difficult issue. The problem with them is that these approaches really run a risk of funding low-quality research. And I want to explain why I think that's the case. One problem is that decisions are separated from consideration of specific projects together with the scientists carrying out that project because you've decided up front that these areas are the ones that should be supported. So you're already loading the dice in that direction independently of the individuals carrying out the research. As a consequence, such initiatives um, may attract less creative and less effective scientists who are simply following where resources are being made available. A second problem is that the identification of favoured and non-favoured research areas is usually made up, made by, not made up, it's usually made, sometimes made up too, is usually made by committees um, uh, consisting of senior researchers. um, I sometimes call the senior researchers silverbacks, rather like myself. And these are not always that research active anymore. Now, the problem with silverback committees deciding on the research areas that should be supported is that they are prone to coming up with the absolutely obvious, the absolutely obvious, and being behind the cutting edge. Better judgments are more likely to be made by scientists actually carrying out the research who are much closer to the research problem being pursued. So I think there's a, these are the tensions that arise when these well-intentioned um, attempts are made to solve this problem. And a consequence of this is ring fence funding. You identify an area. That's an obvious area. It may or may not be that useful. You ring-fence it, you attract the mediocre, and you fund the mediocre. That's the worst possible outcome that can happen. So how can this difficult tension be resolved? Because it is a difficult problem, and we have to accept that it is. Now, I can't solve it, but there are three issues um, that I'd like to mention which I think are relevant to this. The first is actually the Haldane principle, although it is not the same Haldane of either JS or JBS. It's another Haldane. And uh, to be quite honest, it's not actually um, a principle of, of um, the person who is called Holdane, It's simply a principle that we understand the Haldane Um, Principle to be, but that's perhaps too complicated. Anyway, it's generally known as the Holdane Principle. I'll come to that in a moment. The second is a different approach when considering programs aimed at achieving applications and specific goals. And I really want to discuss that because I think that's a difficult issue. And a more imaginative role for scientific leadership in influencing funding. So, those are three things I want to talk about. The first, the Holdane Principle. Is usually interpreted, and Holdane, incidentally, this Holdane was a civil servant um, uh, who had a report, and somehow this has emerged from that report. It's usually interpreted as as meaning that researchers and not politicians should decide how to um, spend funds. And for example, David Willits, Minister of Science, um, has recently restated that by saying politicians, informed by external advice, should decide on the overall science budget, identify key priorities such as specific challenges or key infrastructures, but politicians should not be involved in decisions on specific funding proposals which should be made by researchers using peer review. Now the principle there is, um, and I'm going to extend it somewhat, is that the politicians should be up here and decisions should be made by scientists down here And my, um, on, on the specifics. And I want to argue that um, we should extend the principle in that the scientists who are closer to the research that you're trying to assess are better placed for making those decisions rather than the silverbacks of which I am one. Um, Those leading research funding bodies, in my view, should also focus their attention more on high-level priorities, avoiding the temptation to become too prescriptive and too finely grained in recommendations concerning what areas should be funded. As an aside, if we have physical scientists in the audience, you'll be familiar that EPSERC carried out a survey in um, recent times and divided the area up into 117 or something areas and proceeded to assess each area with the objective of deciding which area should go up and which area should go down. I think that was pure lunacy, in fact because it, it it led to it, it, it was well intentioned, but how could it ever possibly work anyway that's we don't have questions, so you can't dig into that later. You can poke me afterwards if you like okay now research funding bodies and leaders should aden- pump uh, focus their attention more on high level priorities and uh, closer decisions. Um, should be made, um, finer decisions should be made by those closer to the research. And I want to illustrate this point by a metaphor. A metaphor derived from um, 19th century century geographical exploration. Now, in the 19th century, a body such as the Royal Geographical Society, based in London, um, supporting, say, an expedition, might decide that it wants to sponsor... Um, an expedition to explore, for example, the Amazon basin or the source of the Nile or maybe the Antarctic. But um, this uh, committee in London would be ill-advised to be too finely grained in its deliberations and specify which Amazon tributary or which African lake or which South Polar glacier should be the focus of the attention. That should be left to the explorer on the ground and not those in London. The funder's role should be to define the general geographical region of interest, identify the best explorer, properly equip that explorer so they can be most effective in the field, and then just let them get on with it. It's like telling Shackleton you know, which glacier he should have gone up in trying to get to the South Pole. The committee in London could not do that. They could say we want you to get to the South Pole, but not whether you should go on up the Beardmore Glacier or some other glacier. Research funders, in my view, should behave in the same way. They should put their trust in the explorer scientists carrying out the research rather than the committee in London. So as far as possible, research funding decisions, especially at the discovery end of the research spectrum, should be driven by scientists carrying out the research because they're the best ones placed to shape the research agenda that's of course the reason why response mode funding if done well is um, such an effective way to deliver new scientific knowledge however having said all of that this approach does need modification when a research program is directed at achieving specific goals or applications because that does require more prescriptive behavior and I think one of the problems we've had in discussing these areas is uh, when individuals want one size glove that will fit all. You have to think about this in a more nuanced and a more sophisticated way. The first point to make is that goal-directed research can occur anywhere in the scientific spectrum. A good example would be whole genome sequencing in my area, which is an example of a goal, a very clear and specific goal, which is, however, at the discovery end of science. I mean, you have to be prescriptive because you don't want 10 different research groups to sequence the same part of the human genome. I mean, that's just bonkers. I mean, you have to be prescribed about what one, actually, um, um, uh, what one would actually um, does. Although it can occur um, throughout the research spectrum, it tends to be more prevalent when thinking about applications, translation, and innovation. And in my opinion, it is absolutely necessary and extremely valuable to identify sectors um, when they are close to application as being particular areas that are are worth supporting. In other words, I'm recommending a different approach for science that is close to application than science which is um, uh, at the discovery end. However, identification of sectors worthy of support should still be fairly broadly scoped and should involve, in that decision-making, those who are active in the research and in my opinion, those who want to use the outcomes of that research which is being supported. In other words, there needs to be close connections between the research and those who may be in industry or in the healthcare industries that need the um, outcomes of that research. Now this more prescriptive approach um, applies both for profit activities that would drive the economy, commercial ones, but also for -for not-for-profit activities such as improvements in health or protecting the environment. All of these are specific objectives that you're trying to choose. Sometimes it's just that uh, commercial things are seen different, but protecting the environment is also trying to achieve a specific objective. But even when decisions are more prescriptive in the way that I've described, they always need to be driven by quality, both of the research proposed and of the researcher. Um, I want to emphasise the point I've just said, said, though, about um, more prescriptive approaches also sometimes being needed in discovery research, particularly when assembling large data sets, genome sequences is one, meteorological data is another, or when deciding to invest in large infrastructures such as particle accelerators. You can't do that in, in this sort of just focusing on individuals there. You have to create the infrastructures. So we need to think about this problem in different ways, depending on the uh, research that you're carrying out. Now, a third issue I want to comment upon to try and help with this concerns the role of scientific leadership. Now, if after getting uh, advice, a research funding leader decides a particular research area is important, then the temptation is to ring-fence resources and um, uh, protect that area. I would prefer... um, that the research uh, organisation, the research leader, would be persuaded to undertake a process of education and inspiration of researchers so they become motivated to work in that area. Should the area really be as promising as the research leader thinks, then it should be easy to persuade high-quality scientists that there is interesting work to be done. They will simply follow. And as a consequence, they will submit proposals um, in a normal response mode system. Should it not be so interesting then high-quality researchers will be less impressed and you should not be tempted to simply fund low-quality researchers who happen to be attracted to that area. In that case, the research leader perhaps needs to think again whether his or her enthusiasm is well-placed. Research leaders do need to be proactive, but not by ring-fencing or micromanagement of the research agenda, but by educating and inspiring the research community. That is why we need leaders in those positions and not managers in those positions. We need leadership, not management. Of course they have to be managed well, these institutions, but you can provide management in other ways. You cannot provide leadership except by having a leader, obviously. Now, are there other special features concerning decision-making with respect to science that is close to application? Now, science across the whole continuum shares many similarities, as I've already said. And this includes the importance of of talented individuals in in all aspects of the science. However, work closer to application is more likely to be multidisciplinary and is more likely to require greater teamwork, not only in covering uh, more scientific disciplines, but also activities outside science, including finance or market analysis or the law. It requires effort to get individuals from such diverse backgrounds to work well together. And attention needs to be paid to encourage mutual respect between those different sectors and to break down the barriers between them. We need much greater permeability between sectors, encouraging the transfer of both ideas and people more freely. We have in place too many barriers and silos that inhibit free transfer and even encourage suspicion between the very people we're trying to get to work closely together. Now, one of the problems is that increasing knowledge has led to specialisation, making interactions between different scientists working in different disciplines, industry, the public services and other professions more difficult. It was much easier to make such contacts in the less complex society at the time of the Industrial Revolution. Take the Lunar Society, for example, that operated in England during the late 18th century. It was made up of chemists, biologists, doctors, industrialists, engineers, social reformers. They regularly met every month at the time of the full moon to talk and to exchange ideas. It was the full moon so they could ride home at night under light. I suspect they sometimes were not... They'd had probably too much wine by that time as well. This included intellectuals and entrepreneurs such as James Watt, Josiah Wedgwood, and Erasmus Darwin, Charles' grandfather. It was in this atmosphere that the Industrial Revolution was born and prospered, and I think we need to try and reproduce that as well as we can today. We need greater permeability, greater contact between different types of scientists and different professions that are needed to promote the transfer of scientific discovery into the public good. This is a key message. The promotion of translation and innovation requires great permeability across sectors. Much is spoken about the valley of death. That is the gap between the generation of new knowledge and the application of that new knowledge um, for a a, a specific purpose, particularly commercialisation. Now, usually the focus of discussion about the valley of death is on providing financial support to bridge that gap. But I do not think sufficient attention has been given... Um, to pushing, to continue the metaphor further, the bridgeheads further out into the valley, into that valley of death. Now, wh- what do I mean by that? Well, what I'm saying is I think there can be a problem when attempts to translate are made too prematurely before knowledge is sufficiently reliable and complete, especially in the biosciences, given the complexity of living organisms. And I want to explain why. If you are in a discovery research mode, you make observation, experiment, you you test hypotheses. You will have an idea that takes you in this direction. You will make observations or experiments that take you into this direction, and you'll make them again. You will go into this direction, then this direction, and you end up here. It's part of the corrected nature of science. When you're doing translation, you are trying to achieve a specific objective. So when you are achieving a specific objective and observations and experiments start to divert you away from that course, you don't like it. And you will try and keep going in that direction. And the corrective forces in science become weakened. And as a consequence of that, there is a great risk of wasting money because you're trying to reach an objective, a translational objective, which actually you're not well-equipped to do because your knowledge base is not yet good enough to actually achieve it. So my solution to that is that you need to have a better bridgehead so you can know that where you're trying to go, a translation a particular objective, is indeed likely to work. To sum this up and to remind you of a film, a great film of ten years ago, a title anyway, to rush into translation runs the risk of becoming lost in translation. A firmer bridgehead needs to be built involving a more extended and secure knowledge base in that area of interest before attempting to pass over the valley of death. Similarly, however, a bridgehead on the other side, from the side of application, for example, let's say commercialisation, that bridgehead also needs to be extended out. um, With investment from industry in research and people aimed at capturing new knowledge from the other side of the valley. Because without research capacity and without knowledge in industry to recognise good science on the other side of the valley, it's difficult to build back over the valley of death. I would argue that actually we still need research capacity in industry. At the moment, it's been shifting over to the universities, if only to recognise good research coming from the other side. It may matter less... In fact, in industry, exactly what research is being done. But it is only by being a researcher that you can recognise and judge easily research on the um, uh, the other side. I suppose it's time now to turn to the dreaded word impact, which may be familiar to some in the audience. <laughs> now, the first point to make about impact is researchers always want their research to have impact. They do. They want to increase knowledge. That has impact. They want to contribute to culture. That has impact. They want to generate societal benefit to support the economy. The problems come, in my opinion, when crude, metrical applications of impact are made a compulsory part of research funding decisions and assessments. Again, there's been pressure from research agencies, funding agencies, to do this. In my view, the potential impact of research should be clearly identified if it makes sense to do so, but it does not always make sense to do so. To demand a statement in every research proposal or assessment about impact for societal or economic um, benefit, and then to allocate 15% or 18% or 22% of the decision-making to that statement will often simply result in unhelpful flights of fantasy of no value. And I know it because I've written enough of these myself. Impact is just one aspect of a number of factors that need to be considered and absolutely should be provided when relevant and not at all if irrelevant. And that, I think, is only saying, once again, one size glove does not fit all. It's absolutely obvious, but sometimes our agencies don't see it. Now, funding high-quality research will produce the scientific knowledge needed for the public good, including driving innovation, including supporting the economy. But we need to get it right, and we need to have proper discussions and debate about getting it right. I don't think we do enough of that, so that science can play its proper role for the benefit of society. Because getting it wrong simply wastes money, it may sound good, but it may not be good, and it loses the great opportunities that science can play to improve the lot of humankind. Now let me move to my second topic. The second topic, I'll remind you, is giving good um, advice, scientific advice, for the generation of policy. Because benefit for society, making science work well, requires high-quality scientific advice Um, for policymakers and to the public in general. Now, high-quality scientific advice is always dependent upon high-quality science. Let's make that as a starting position. And good science is a reliable way of generating knowledge because of the way it's done. And I just want to touch upon that because it will help in our subsequent um, um, uh, argument. Um, Good science is based on reproducible observation and experiment, It takes account of all evidence. It does not cherry-pick data. Scientific issues are settled by the overall strength of that evidence, combined with rational, consistent, and objective argument. Central to science is the ability to prove that something is not true. An attribute, incidentally, which helps distinguish science from beliefs based on religions and ideologies, which place more emphasis on faith tradition and opinion. Good scientists, as I've said already, are inherently sceptical, particularly of their own ideas. If an observation or an experimental result does not support a specific idea, then simply that idea either has to be rejected or modified and then tested again. Sometimes scientific knowledge is quite tentative, especially at early stages of an investigation. And it's only after a repeated, successful testing, that knowledge becomes more secure and reliable. It is failure to fully understand this process of science that, in my view, can lead to problems when scientists are called upon to give advice on issues about which the science is uncertain. Sometimes society wants clear and simple answers when it's simply not possible to provide them, and scientists have to recognise that, and, of course, um, the public and policy makers. Have to recognize that. Now, scientific advice should be based on the consensus view of scientists expert in the area concerned, those who actually know what they're talking about. They need to be fully aware of conflicting explanations and of the evidence upon which those explanations are based. As a further check when giving advice, the advice given or generated by one group of expert scientists needs to be challenged through peer review carried out by a group of uh, separate expert scientists to ensure the conclusions reached are reliable and secure. You need to be very careful about this. If there is no strong consensus, or if knowledge is still tentative, then these uncertainties have to be reflected in the advice. Even when certainty is being requested, You have to identify the uncertainties. I suggest to you that these conclusions are relatively uncontroversial. However, what makes giving scientific advice more complex is the fact that advice is being used to inform public policy. And the development of public policy is not based only on science, of course, but on a wide range of societal considerations and opinions not all of which are as evidence-based or as rational as science. Now, when the lines between these two become blurred, then the science can become mired in controversy. And that has not always been good, either for science or for good public policy. Now, given these complexities, I want to consider two controversial areas to see what lessons can be learnt about how scientific advice should be provided to society because it's by looking at controversies that you can actually learn about the issues that underpin these. Now, one controversial area has concerned climate science. Is the world warming? Is human activity responsible? How much is it expected to warm in the future? Now, the consensus view of the great majority of expert climate scientists is that the globe has increased in temperature by around 0.7, 0.8 degrees centigrade during the last century, that this is largely due to increased gas emissions, and these are mostly the consequence of human activity. And given that, a further rise of 2 degrees, or maybe somewhat more, up to 4 degrees, can be expected during the next century. Now, within that mainstream consensus view, there's a continuing debate about a number of aspects of the science, especially with the difficult issue of predicting the future, um, given the complexities of feedbacks within the global climate system. However, there are also those who have more extreme opinions outside this mainstream view. At one end, it's argued either that uh, little warming is taking place or no warming is taking place, or that human agency has no effect, and hence there will be no warming in the future. At the other end, it's argued that global warming is catastrophic and during the next century it will be more extreme, maybe 10 degrees centigrade rise in temperatures. There are supporters of both these more extreme positions in the public sphere, but it is the former arguments that have gained some traction even amongst individuals who would normally respect consensus, expert, scientific analysis. So why is this the case. Now, a feature of this controversy is that those who deny that there is a problem often have political or ideological views that lead them to be unhappy with the actions that would be necessary if global warming is due to human activity. They have very legitimate concerns about what that might imply if global warming is taking place, because these actions are likely to include measures such as Um, uh, greater concerted world action, curtailing the freedom of individuals, companies and nations, and curbing some kinds of industrial activity, potentially risking economic growth. And these are things that need to be uh, debated out in the public sphere. The problem is, is what appears to be happening, is that the concerns of those worried about what might need to be done have led them to attack the science of the climate scientists Um, Rather than just focusing on the politics, using scientific arguments that the climate scientists, the experts, find weak and unconvincing, and even in my uh, examination of it, nearly always involves cherry-picking of data and of argument. A number of other features, however, have complicated the situation. One has been a failure of some climate scientists to be as open as they should be in making all their data available. This has led um, others to deny, who deny that there's a problem to claim that the climate scientist's data is wrong or has been manipulated and is, be, is all a fraud. Another feature is the complexity of climate science, which leads to uncertainties. As I've said before, in a world where people often want simple answers, uncertainty does not appeal. And this allows space. It allows space for poorly evidenced, but confidently stated opinions, which are sometimes mixed with personal attacks and misrepresentations, to attract public and political attention. The uncertainty leads to um, this space. So what can be learnt from the climate science and global warming controversy? Firstly, it reinforces the points um, already made about the importance of relying on um, a consensus view of expert scientists, the need to avoid cherry-picking data. But it also emphasises the need to keep science as far as possible from political and ideological, and for that matter, though not so relevant here, religious influence. This, of course, can be difficult. All scientists are human, but that's what good scientific analysis and good scientific advice needs. A second controversial area has been discussions around genetically modified foods, GM foods. That is the introduction of genes by genetic engineering into crop plants. Now the consensus view of the majority of expert plant uh, uh, scientists is that in principle this is a safe approach and it can lead to considerable benefits, both commercial ones, reducing food spoilage, and also help tackle global problems such as world hunger by increasing crop yields and the use of marginal habitats for crop growing. These scientists would also argue that, of course, you require precautionary te- checks. They need to be in place. But in general, these should be similar to those used for conventionally produced crop plants. That is, you use a case-by-case specific plant basis to determine science safety and effectiveness. This consensus scientific view has been accepted by the public in some countries, but in others it has not. Again, why is this the case? Now, in my view, in this case, the key features of this particular controversy um, are people's sensitivities about what they eat, concerns about scientists playing at God, and worries about the influence of overbearing commercial interests. These have converged to generate a deep suspicion, among some, about GM foods. Now, human beings have a tendency to be conservative, even fearful about what their food contains. Um, I come from a working-class family, and my parents had never had an Indian meal before. I went to university. I went to Birmingham. I lived on Indian food because it was good quality food and it was cheap. I wanted to um, uh, um, expose them to Indian food. The horror when faced with this spicy food was just something to be believed. Now, one anxiety I noticed was which was frequently expressed during public consultation exercises over GM Crocs, was concern at eating food containing genes. (laughs) Now, this is something that a scientist would never, a question they would never ask. But it was actually a perfectly reasonable question for a member of the public to ask. You know, I don't want to eat this food that contains genes. The concern was exacerbated by newspaper headlines which called GM crops Frankenstein foods. You remember? It's uh, the so called newspaper, the Daily Mail said that. Conjuring up images of white coated scientists playing God and tampering with the purity of food. Another feature is often those who object to GM have political or ideological opinions which dislike the power yielded by uh, um, commercial corporations behind the manufacture of certain GM crops. I mean, interestingly, of course, the political and ideological views of those who object to climate change is the complete opposite for those that object to GM foods, which tells us something. It tells you something, just obviously. So these anti-GM opinions have been adopted by some environmental NGOs who campaign against the use of GM crops, even when their use is aimed at reducing vitamin deficiency in children in the developing world, for example. I mean, Greenpeace had a policy to trash um, such attempts to produce such food. Now, what can be learnt from the public debate concerning the use of GM crops? First, it is clear that there's been a failing, in my view, to properly engage the public and listen to what they have to say. We needed to know they were worried about eating food that contained genes. Scientists have to listen to the public to be completely aware of of their concerns and of the questions they want answered by the scientists. Scientists and single-interest pressure groups are not always the best individuals to frame the questions that the public want answered. Second is the need for high-quality debate in the mass media. Scientists need to be part of this debate from the very beginning to ensure that it's based on evidence and on rational argument rather than ideology or politics. And third, scientific advice is best delivered by scientists who are impartial rather than those who may have other motives. And this could be the case for a company trying to promote the use of GM or NGOs attacking GM crops who rely on the support of individuals ideologically opposed to such technologies. It covers both. Now, an important question... You'll be pleased to hear I'm getting near the end of my talk. An important question is what groups of scientists and scientific bodies can be relied on for giving scientific advice to the public. It's obvious it's best to involve those who are expert. It's also uh, useful to involve peer review to check the experts. I also like uh, the use of scientific generalists who understand the attributes of good science and familiar with scientific policy. The corollary is also true. Those who are not expert and those who cannot properly assess the relevant specialist evidence and argument are not likely to be appropriate. But you read the columnists in some of our newspapers. They're convinced they are expert in areas they simply do not understand. Very irritating. Scientists giving advice need to be open and impartial. They shouldn't cherry-pick data, of course. They need to explain the range of possibilities. They need to assess the probabilities of particular outcomes. They also need to be clear in what they say. Now, a range of different bodies offer scientific advice on policy issues. And what are the characteristics of a body or bodies that can be trusted? It's always, of course, useful to look at advice from a, a, a range of bodies uh, because it's good to be exposed to a range of opinions. However, some types of bodies are likely to be more reliable at giving scientific advice. And in general terms, I think the characteristic to look for is as follows. They should be broadly based, not single interest groups. They should be impartial as far as possible. They should understand the methods and values of science. They should respect openness, and they should carry out proper peer review. More specialist organizations with specific objectives, such as lobbying groups, um, may find it more difficult to be impartial. A company concerned about its income, an NGO about the views of its supporters, will perhaps be more difficult, find it more difficult um, to be objective in their scientific um, analysis. Sometimes scientific advice is being offered by more shadowy organizations who do not want to declare where their support comes from for their policy work they are more likely to be acting as lobby groups, simply not revealing for whom or for what they are lobbying. And frankly, we should not rely on their advice. Similarly, organisations that are bombastic or resort to personal attacks or misrepresentation are likely to be resorting to such tactics because they're using political arguments rather than scientific ones. And so their scientific advice should be treated with caution. Just look at the blog sphere if you want examples of that. So in summary, what is the good practice for the provision of scientific advice? It should be based on the totality of observation and experiment. It should be rational. It should reflect consensus views of experts. It should be peer-reviewed. If there's no strong consensus or knowledge is tentative, this needs to be reflected in the advice. The science should be kept separate from political, ideological and religious influence as far as possible. It requires good public engagement to make sure public concerns are taken account of and the questions are framed correctly. And scientists need to be involved from the outset in the public debate um, to prevent uh, issues becoming unhelpfully um, polarised. Finally, scientific bodies who can be trusted to give advice should be broadly based, impartial, understand science and be completely open about their sources of income and their conflicts of interest in their public policy work. These attributes generally apply to national science academies such as the Royal Society, which has been providing scientific advice to society for 350 years and on the whole has done a pretty good job. But then I'm not being objective in saying that. (laughs) If we combine good scientific advice with good decisions about what scientific research should be supported, and also, and I haven't spoken about that tonight, ensure there are sufficient resources for that scientific research, then we can make science work well for us, for our culture, our health, our quality of life, for protecting our environment and for driving our economy. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: very very much indeed. Uh, I was educated in the era of two cultures uh, when uh, people with aptitude for the humanities uh, were immediately streamed off into art subjects and never learnt any science. One of the attractions for me of coming to Wolfson was getting out of that silo and meeting people such as all of you in this room or many of you in this room in many different disciplines. But even here I have rarely heard a talk by a distinguished scientist which so generously and persuasively brought to bear the language of the humanities, imagination, creativity, freedom, culture, understanding of ourselves into the treatment of the sciences. But if it were just a matter of rhetoric, we would not have been hanging on your every word in this room so demonstrative of global warming. Uh, it, It is also a matter of pragmatism, clear and helpful, but not simple argument, and enlightened recommendations about specific priorities in research, education, and policy, which are of immense importance to every one of us. It was benign, tough, inspiring, realistic. It had, if I may say so, considerable impact. And it was a talk of great value, for which we are all, I know, extremely grateful. Thank you very much. Thank you.